Welcome to Cato Audio for April 2013. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Senator Jeff Flake talks spending cuts. Clint Bolick discusses immigration reform. Attorney Tim Sandifer takes on Obamacare. And historian Walter McDougall examines American exceptionalism. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. If you listen to the news media, you would believe that the cuts, the spending cuts, which is a bit of a misnomer itself, under sequestration were draconian, evil, huge, and devastating. I'm talking with Chris Preble, Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute, and Dan Mitchell, also a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. So the sequestration that we are currently living under or in the, in the Washington metropolitan area enduring, I suppose. Chris, for the Pentagon, this is uh, the cuts are real. That's one difference between uh, the Pentagon budget cuts and the cuts in other departments. That's true. It's significant in one sense that military spending actually did decline under sequestration. It was the first time since the 1990s when military spending, especially the base Pentagon budget that's excluding the cost of the wars, actually declined from the previous year. You've heard a lot of talk, no doubt, about there already having been hundreds of billions in cuts. In fact, the first round of the Budget Control Control Act from 2011, which established caps on spending, supposedly saved $487 billion, but that really just lowered or slowed the rate of growth and was still increasing spending year over year. Under sequestration, uh, Pentagon spending actually has declined or will decline this year to about where it was in 2006 or 2007 in inflation-adjusted terms. And if the sequestration levels hold, it will continue on into 2021 at about the levels where we were 2008, nine out through the end of the decade. Now, we had a little bit of trepidation in deciding to whether or not to talk about this particular subject because as Congress is oft want to do, they might well have backed out of this program. But Dan Mitchell, is that likely that Congress is going to undo this? Well, first, I'm so glad that we're still alive and here to talk about this because I thought we were going to all eat poisoned meat and fall out of the airplanes in the sky. And uh, I'm just amazed that somehow the world is still spinning on its orbit, notwithstanding what the president said. Sequestration is with us until at least March 27th because that's when there's a continuing resolution. But it appears that it might even be with us after the continuing resolution, because it does not appear at this moment that the president is going to threaten a government shutdown in order to get those uh, so-called spending cuts restored. We, of course, still do have the uh, debt limit coming up. We have the fiscal 2014 budget resolution coming up. We have the fiscal 2014 appropriations bills coming up. So there are many opportunities for new spending to get added to the mix. But as of right now, maybe even for more than one month, we will live under a sequestration, which of course means draconian, savage, bone-crunching budget cuts that result in the government only growing by $2.4 trillion over the next 10 years rather than $2.5 trillion. So women and children first, man the lifeboats. Okay. Chris Preble, with respect to the functional methods by which these spending cuts, again, in the Pentagon, they are real cuts. In Mm -hmm. other departments, they are not. Mm -hmm. How are these applied? And are the concerns about these programs having to take very specific, sharp cuts across the board, Mm -hmm. are they justified? I think there's some legitimate complaints from people in the Pentagon that if you implement sequestration the way the law requires, which is to kind of make the cuts in a foolish fashion across the board at a program level, that would be stupid. Of course, sequestration was never supposed to happen. The threat of sequestration was supposed to convince Republicans to accept higher taxes, convince Democrats to accept deeper spending cuts. Neither of those things happened, so we were left with sequestration. I think there will be, there is some serious talk about granting the Pentagon more flexibility in applying the cuts in a more strategic way, perhaps putting deeper cuts in the army in particular, for example, because we're coming out of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and perhaps cutting less from the Navy, cutting perhaps less from the Air Force, perhaps even allowing some additional money to flow to new threats like cyber threats, things like that. But there is still a lot of resistance to granting the Pentagon that flexibility from people in Congress, partly because, of course, they don't want to be on the hook for making strategic cuts that 
will offend some people along the way. It's almost, again, from a member of Congress's perspective, to be truly gutless is to not be able to be blamed for any of the actual cuts. Okay. And Dan Mitchell, can this be used, do you think, as a springboard to get some deeper spending cuts, or is that a bridge too far? I don't know that there's a direct connection, but of course, we just have had the Ryan budget proposed on Capitol Hill. That's the the House Budget Committee chairman, a Republican from Wisconsin. And that budget calls for, uh, I think it's $4.1 or $4.6 trillion of spending cuts. Again, those are spending cuts off a baseline, not real spending cuts, not even inflation-adjusted spending cuts. Uh, Government would actually grow 3.4% a year under the Ryan budget, but it wouldn't grow 5% a year. And that's the way you measure things in Washington. So it's not connected to the fact that there's a sequester, but it is connected in that it's another fiscal policy battle. Now, that's the good news. Someone's actually talking about doing something on the budget. There's proposed Medicaid and Medicare reform, a lot of it built on the good work of Mike Tanner and Michael Cannon at the Cato Institute. That's part of the Ryan budget. Unfortunately, the Senate hasn't passed a budget in almost four years. It's questionable whether they will pass one this year. But even if the Senate does pass a budget, there's almost zero chance that we would have the House and Senate agree in a conference committee on a budget resolution. So therefore, there would be no instructions to committees, as budget wonks like to say, requiring actual changes to be made in the law. So I'm more likely to be playing center field for the New York Yankees this year than we are to actually have a budget resolution requiring anything good or bad on the budget. I think that where it is significant is that This set up as a battle, especially in this last round, the round since the first of the year when the question was, would the sequestration be allowed to take effect? It set up a battle within the Republican Party between uh, defense hawks, those who said not a penny more from defense, implying incorrectly, of course, that the Pentagon spending had already been cut, versus those who had made pretty strong commitments to their constituents to actually cut spending. And the fiscal hawks won. Now, they won this round. It doesn't mean they're going to win the next round. I think Dan's right. The the next big focus is on the CR, the continuing resolution. And there are many subsequent opportunities to put additional spending back into the budget, including in the Pentagon. But I think that politically, the fact that a number of Republicans held the line and said, we will allow cuts in Pentagon spending and live to see the light of day should, I think, encourage other fiscal hawks and to hold the line the next time around and the time after that. Do you think it's underappreciated the idea that when that Republican intransigence on spending cuts in the Pentagon actually enables a lot of the social spending that takes place in the federal government? Sure. I, I think there's a there's a pretty well established that Once upon a time, this was the tacit agreement between Democrats and Republicans that the Democrats allowed, you know, additional spending on Pentagon and in exchange the Republicans allowed more spending on domestic priorities. They both got their way and and everybody was happy. Um, You know, it's cynical and ultimately short-sighted because at the end of the day, you do actually have to pay for it or at least account for the fact that we're piling debt on top of more debt. I think the way this fight set up as a battle between those who were absolutely committed to not raising taxes, including many Republicans who said we're not going to increase taxes, and those Republicans who recognized that they could not spend much, much more on the Pentagon without raising taxes and making other cuts elsewhere. And again, so for now, I'm encouraged that the the fiscal hawks won, and I hope they'll hold the line next time. Now, Dan Mitchell, if you wouldn't mind, take us back a few decades here. There are people who are very concerned about the budgetary or should say the economic impact of the spending cuts on the Pentagon. We heard, I believe it was somebody from the Obama administration, maybe Gene Sperling, arguing that it would cost hundreds of thousands of jobs, 750,000, I believe, saying that all independent economists agreed on that. If you wouldn't mind, walk us back to sort of the end of World War II when we had a dramatic spending reduction in the military. What happened then? What we're talking about is the Keynesian argument about government spending being stimulative and pro-growth for the economy. And supposedly, if we have this sequester, which only cuts $44 billion of actual outlays for fiscal 2013, supposedly out of our, what, $15, $16 trillion economy, if we have $44 billion less in government spending, that's going to cause massive job losses, according to the administration. The only problem is This is the same argument the administration made 
when they wanted to pass the so-called stimulus in 2009. They claimed if we passed the stimulus, the unemployment rate would never climb above 8%. If we passed the so-called stimulus, we'd have millions of jobs. We're still a couple of million short from where we were at the peak of the previous uh, business cycle. And of course, as you mentioned, it doesn't matter what time in history you're looking at. After World War II, we had a significant reduction in the burden of government spending, largely because of the drawdown of military expenditures, and our economy recovered, even though all the Keynesians at the time were saying that this was going to be an economic cataclysm, we'd be back in a Great Depression. But then again, the Keynesians were wrong under Hoover and Roosevelt. They both doubled spending. Hoover increased at 50% in four years, and then Roosevelt doubled it in the next eight years. And yet the economy stayed in a depression precisely, I think, in part because the burden of government spending was increasing. You can look at Japan in the 1990s. All their so-called stimulus packages are associated with economic weakness and stagnation. So the notion that government spending is some sort of elixir that you can magically uh, open up the spigots and that's going to help the economy, it is so anti-historical and anti-empirical that I almost don't even know where to stop or start. All right. Chris Preble, um, you know, following World War II, of course, a huge drawdown, but the war had ended. The need for that kind of spending went away. And it, and this has repeated itself over and over throughout history, except very recently. Correct. So what accounts for the difference here today between all those wars? And you could watch the Pentagon sure. budget shrink right. time I mean, and time again. I mean, it is unlike non-defense spending, which we've seen increase consistently since the 1960s, Pentagon spending actually does decline and rise and decline. So we saw it not just after World War II, we saw it after Korea, we saw it after Vietnam, we saw it after the end of the Cold War. And every single time there is an adjustment period, it's particularly acute in places that are heavily dependent upon military industry. But over time, fewer and fewer places are heavily dependent upon military industry. And therefore, the impact of this spending, even in those places, is much diminished. Some people, the defense hawks, those who think that we should be spending much more on the military than we are currently, like to point out that it's only 4% of GDP or only 4.5% of GDP. And we spent twice or three times that at various points during the Cold War. Of course, leaving aside that you shouldn't measure how much you spend on your military based on the size of your economy, it should be based on the threats you're confronting. The other argument cuts in the other direction. If it's true that military spending is such a small share of the economy, then modest cuts in that spending should not have catastrophic effects unless you buy into a completely unrealistic Keynesian multiplier, which is where these ridiculous job loss numbers comes from. Those studies were funded, go figure, by the Aerospace Industries Association, which has a very important interest in making people think that these cuts are going to have a horrific impact. But as Dan says, the empirical evidence does not support it. And just logically, people can understand that a dollar taken out of the private sector and put into military spending, which is, is after all, part of the public sector, is less efficient and could be better used elsewhere in the economy and I think ultimately will be better used in the economy. We saw it even most recently. We saw it during the 1990s when we had a pretty substantial decrease in military spending spending, about 25 percent, actually a little bit more than that, and yet experienced a, a long period of quite robust growth. Now, one of the things that was so, I think, damnable about the uh, Romney campaign was that he was making these kinds of Keynesian arguments when it came to military spending. Dan Mitchell, is that still par for the course among Republicans in Congress? We've had a number of Republicans making Keynesian-type arguments. If you want to bend over backwards, you could maybe say that there's a transitional issue that uh, labor and capital don't get instantly redeployed if some sort of government program is cut back or reduced or heaven forbid, even eliminate it. Uh, but but something tells me that, that they're relying on a Keynesian argument in the same way that the aerospace industries study that Chris was talking about. It's just a convenient thing to do when you're trying to protect your place at the public trough. I think that politically, it does make sense because there's so much misinformation and just general confusion among the public that doesn't have a deep historical knowledge. They focus on the scene, that is the jobs lost, and they don't consider the unseen, that is the jobs are created by freeing resources elsewhere. And politicians in particular have no interest in shining the light or calling attention to the unseen benefits because, of course, the politicians don't control, generally speaking, that spending. They do control and they can boast about and they can have press conferences 
conferences at post offices and, and uh, you know, ship commissionings that says, because I supported this bill, X number of people were employed. They can't say that when someone goes and buys a coffee at the Starbucks or goes, goes down the street or, you know, buys a, a new iPad or something like that. A politician can't claim credit for any of those things. And yet we know that the, the private sector is a much more efficient use of capital and labor, and therefore it's uh, better for the economy in the aggregate. Obviously, I agree with what Chris is saying, and I want to build upon it by, uh, again, looking at some of the evidence, not only from our own country. We talked about what happened after World War II. We've talked about what's happened uh, in the uh, 1990s when the military was reduced. But if you look around the world, it's basically a laboratory, and you see the countries with small governments. You see the countries with big governments. Where do you get year after year after year strong, rapid growth? Where do you get the strong job numbers? You get them in places with very small governments like uh, Hong Kong and Singapore. Where do you get the weakest performance? In places with really big governments like uh, France and Italy. And then historically, in between, you've had countries like Switzerland, Australia, and the U.S. where the medium-sized governments. But during the Bush-Obama years, our burden of government has been getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I don't think it's any mystery or surprise that our economy seems to be suffering now more European-style job and economic growth numbers. I think the relationship is pretty clear. Dan, you mentioned the uh, Paul Ryan budget and how it treats these issues. The Republican Study Committee has a reputation for being more conservative on these things. How does the RSC budget treat military spending typically? Well, the RSC, I'm not even sure they'll have a budget this year. I haven't been following it. But last year, they had a budget that uh, restrained spending more aggressively. Now, I think the difference between the Ryan budget and the RSC budget last year was that they imposed a little bit more restraint on the domestic budget. I don't think there was any significant, there may have even been no difference in uh, the trend line for military spending. So the RSC guys, if they do do a budget, I think it's safe to assume that they'll be more aggressive on domestic spending, but probably leave the defense budget the same as Ryan. I think that's right. I think the previous RSC chair, Congressman Jordan, I think his comment to the effect that the only thing worse than sequestration would be no cuts at all. And then his successor, Steve Scalise, said the same thing. And I sent that. I think that sent a very strong signal, going back to what I said earlier, about kind of stiffening the spine of the fiscal hawks, the people who said, we can hold the line, we cannot be accused of not being true Republicans if we're committed to spending restraint or, or modest reductions in military spending. But I think Dan's right. I don't expect the RSC or others like him to take a harder line on military spending than Ryan has. What he has basically done is accept some of the spending caps, uh, but not uh, as deep as the sequestration level of cuts that we're under right now. Who's focusing on this in Congress? Of course, Barney Frank was, but he's no longer in office. You know, I think a lot of attention has been to, uh, focused on Tom Coburn in the Senate from Oklahoma, and I think he's done some good work because he's looked very specifically at military spending. The Back in Black plan got a lot of attention, but another report that he did called the Department of Everything shown the light on a lot of the things that are spending in the Pentagon budget that has absolutely nothing at all to do with the military funding things like beef jerky research and things like that. The other person to pay attention to is Mike Kaufman, a congressman from Colorado, a retired Marine Corps officer. He's put forward some very specific and I think quite courageous recommendations on spending cuts focused initially on reducing the size of the U.S. military presence in Europe, which could generate some pretty substantial savings. And I think that some other programmatic reforms that Kaufman is proposing, a number of them are are difficult to make politically, but I think he has standing because he has prior service, because he is a, a committed conservative, kind of a Tea Party type person. And he obviously cares very deeply about this issue. The third person I should mention is Mick Mulvaney from South Carolina, who's also been in the lead on this. He helped organize a bipartisan letter on holding the line on defense cuts. And I think that he's likely to continue to be quite outspoken on this issue going forward. All right, gentlemen, we're going to leave it there. Chris Preble, Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute, and Dan Mitchell, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. We have extensive voluminous output on uh, this subject related to uh, military spending, where it ought to be cut, and why, uh, just as importantly, why it ought to be cut at our website, cato.org. Where to cut spending? Senator Jeff Flake of Arizona has a few ideas. For example, war in Afghanistan, farm subsidies, Head Start, and other government programs of questionable value. Flake laid out his defensive spending cuts at the Cato Institute's 25th Annual Benefactors Summit in February. 
I think uh, what we can do, what we need to do, is cut spending. More than anything else, that's what we've got to do in Washington. I was glad to see uh, David handed me, before I got up here, a uh, piece that he just wrote and gives three suggestions on where we might start. There's a lot of discussion about the sequester and what we ought to do. And uh, there are plenty of candidates for cutting spending. I'm glad to see the first one he had there is farm programs. Now, talk about an area that needs desperate, desperate attention. It's that one. It's not just the money that's spent. It's the way that it distorts our trade practices and everything else. If you don't know, we're spending, well, it's about uh, $30 billion a year on these programs. And then you have, you have market preferences and you have uh, crop insurance programs and other things that mask the true costs as well of these programs. But just to give you one example, we subsidized cotton quite uh, substantially. Many of us in 2002, when the uh, Freedom to Farm Act was done away with for the Farm Security Act, just think of the language of that. Uh, Ronald Reagan used to talk about trading freedom for security. We took the Freedom to Farm Act and replaced it with the Farm Security Act. This was Republicans, mind you, in 2002. But many of us warned at that time we're subsidizing cotton so heavily that if we continue with this, we'll be sued in the WTO probably by Brazil, and they'll win. They sued, and they won. Our response is not to cut cotton subsidies, our own cotton subsidies. It's we went to Brazil and said, we'll give you $150 million a year to subsidize your cotton if you'll drop the suit or, or not pursue the suit against ours. So for the past three years, we have paid the government of Brazil $150 million a year to subsidize their cotton so we can continue to subsidize ours at this level. I saw these farm programs and uh, I went to the floor and gave a, a speech that uh, I probably shouldn't have. I talked about when I was a kid on the farm, one of my jobs was what my dad called bloat watch. My dad would sit me up on a tank bank over the alfalfa fields where we'd graze the cattle early in the season on the first cutting. The uh, first cutting of alfalfa is quite gaseous and Cattle can't take it. Horses, it doesn't bother, but cattle with four stomachs and the way they ruminate, it doesn't uh, do them well. And so these cattle will eat and not realize they're eating too much, and all of a sudden they'll just plop over. And if you don't uh, do something, they'll, they'll simply die. It'll cut off their wind. And so I would sit on the tank bank, and uh, my dad would give me a knife. And if a critter were to fall over, you rush to them. And, and on their left side, the fourth stomach is just behind the last rib. You just give it a good punch. And uh, haylage spews in the air, sometimes 10, 12 feet up, and uh, rains down upon you. It's not, not the most pleasant job <laughs> for a kid. <laughs> but uh, I described this and then related it on the House floor to uh, you know, trying to take care of bloated government. And uh, I had some of the clerks and stenographers were going like this, and I thought it probably went too far. But after this time, uh, we had a, a gentleman, uh, Marion Berry, not the one we all know from D.C., but one from Arkansas, who he himself was collecting some pretty serious farm subsidies on his farm. He got up and said, uh, that young feller just spoke, doesn't know a lick about farming. And so I thought, I can't let that stand. And so I got somebody to yield me time. I went back to the mic and uh, I said, you'll note if you see the end of my right index finger, it's missing. I said, I left that in an alfalfa field at age five. I said, uh, I've forgotten a lot about farming over the years, but I still know manure when it's shoveled. <laughs> and I realized I shouldn't have said that. The, the next day, the Wall Street Journal had the quote of the week that had that there. So now when my staff gives me talking points or a speech, they leave a space at the beginning and say, insert farm analogy here. So it, it, it works all right. But farm programs is a big one. The second you, one you put is Head Start. I mean, what a boondoggle that has been over the years. Uh, billions and billions of dollars spent on something that uh, evaporates by grade three and beyond. And then the, the last one, uh, Afghanistan. I traveled to Afghanistan uh, just a few weeks ago and uh, I've advocated for a long time a smaller footprint there. We may need a presence, but we don't need the presence that we currently have. And with the president uh, timetable, there are a lot of people 
on my side of the aisle uncomfortable with that. I'm a little uncomfortable of that because I think it ought to be faster. I think that we could draw down faster than that. And the one thing that's troubling as well, you go to Afghanistan right now and you see all the bases there and realize that we're going to be assembling them quickly, some of them massive control towers and centers like in Kandahar or elsewhere that we just finished. And now we're going to be forced to leave them. And the last thing, we would be better off bulldozing them because the last thing you want to do to the poor Afghan government is to give them a big facility like that that will tether them to a base when that's not where they should be. If they're going to keep control of that country, they need to be out patrolling and elsewhere. So it would be a terrible thing to saddle them and tether them to these bases. But uh, like many other programs, we tend to, to just go beyond. Let me just end uh, by saying there are reasons for optimism. We have this sequester coming up. And I think for those who are concerned about uh, some of the areas that it will cut disproportionately, I think all of us would structure it differently. But man, I'm glad we've got it. I'm glad we, we've got it coming up. It'll be the first time, the first time in I don't know how long, where we have actually, we've had a couple of rescission bills that affect the trajectory of some of the entitlement programs, but cutting discretionary programs, we just haven't done it. And this is such a small cut in the end, 2.3% in programs and agencies that have seen their budgets increase by 17, 20% just over the past couple of years, even when you exclude the stimulus spending that bulked up that baseline. So uh, this is not uh, untoward or difficult, and I hope that we can do it. Uh, George Will pointed out in a column yesterday that... Uh, the year after World War II, or the year after we ended World War II, government spending decreased 40%. Now, for the Keynesians out there who worry about uh, this contraction that might come to GDP with a 2.3% cut, 40% and the economy boomed. Last year's presidential election was steeped in references to the notion of American exceptionalism. But too often, that idea is used to justify a foreign policy based on shaping the world in our image. So says Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Walter McDougall. He traced the true origins and disputed the conventional interpretations of that concept at a Cato Book Forum in February. What does it mean to say that the United States is exceptional? If it means just unique, then the claim is unexceptional because no two countries are exactly alike. If it just means that Americans have believed their country is special, then, as a British skeptic has written, there's nothing exceptional about this exceptionalism. All great nations cherish national myths. If it means that the USA is exceptionally virtuous, given its ideals of liberty, equality, justice, prosperity, social mobility, and peace with all nations, then ipso facto, the nation is exceptionally vicious for falling so short of those ideals. If the term means rather that Americans are somehow exempted from the laws of entropy governing all other nations, that, as Bismarck is reported to have quipped, God has a special providence for fools, drunks, in the United States, <laughs> then such exceptionalism can only be proven sub specie aeternitatis. Indeed, the very illusion that a nation enjoys a divine dispensation may perversely inspire the pride that goeth before a fall, or the many bad ends to which reckless adolescents are prone. Finally, if American exceptionalism means that its power, values, and indispensable status render the United States exempt, from the rules of behavior it makes and enforces for other nations, why, then enemies, neutrals, and allies alike are sure to push back. Exceptionalism is simply more trouble and more danger than it's worth. It either means nothing at all or altogether too much. But the principal reason to banish the term from historical discourse is that the icky polysyllabic Latinate moniker didn't even exist until the mid-20th century. No Puritan colonist, founding patriot, Civil War statesman, romantic poet, pastor, or propagandist 
employed the word. To be sure, most of them believed the United States to be an historic undertaking, even a new order for the ages. But far from believing their nation to be an exception to the rules of nature governing other men and nations, they either hoped their example would transform the world, or they feared that a lack of Republican virtue here would doom the experiment. In neither case would Americans stand apart from the human race. Not until 1835 did Alexis de Tocqueville catalog the features of New World Democracy and conclude, quote, the position of the Americans is therefore quite exceptional, and it may be believed that no democratic people will ever be placed in a similar one, unquote. Okay, but note, however, that he applied the term to Americans' position rather than to the people themselves, and disputed the notion that American institutions and values could ever be universal. In any event, his adjectival usage had no echo and inspired no noun, no ism, among Americans themselves. Exceptionalism as a sort of birthright is an anachronism. Flash forward to 1906, when another foreigner, sociologist Werner Zumbart, asked why American working classes showed so little interest in socialism. He identified many reasons for this, but nowhere did he employ any word that could be fairly translated as exceptionalism. Zumbart referred instead to the idiosyncrasies of the spiritual culture, or the American popular soul, die Eigenarten der amerikanischen Volksseele. What was the source of this spirit, he asked. Must one hypothesize that it just dropped from the heavens on the chosen people, auf das auserwählte Volk? Not at all, because the same entrepreneurial spirit could be found in London or Berlin. It was just purer and more pervasive in the United States, thanks to such factors as the Protestant ethic, democratic consensus, two-party system, high standard of living, social mobility, and the safety valve of an open frontier. For Werner Zumbart, Americans occupied an extreme on the sociological spectrum, but were not exceptional not off the charts. The real origins of the notion of an exceptional United States lurk in the recondite disputations of the two greatest transnational movements of the early 20th century, the Roman Catholic Church and the Communist International. Both had reason to fear that Americans might be immune to their presumptively universal appeals really ever since 1784, when Bishop John Carroll set up the first Catholic diocese in the U.S., the Vatican displayed confusion about how to grow a doctrinal hierarchical church in a mostly Protestant land that enjoyed religious freedom and material plenty. A century later, the big immigration wave of the 1890s, the European prelates grew alarmed about reports from American bishops about the erosion of doctrine and obedience among Catholic immigrants and their children. So, Pope Leo XIII issued an encyclical in 1899, Testem Benevolentiae Nostri, which condemned the heresy of Americanism, a name, I noticed to my amusement, the encyclical says, to which there is no reason to take exception. <laughs> It attributed Americanism to the nation's revolutionary Anglo-Saxon origins, its individualism, liberalism, egalitarianism, and separation of church and state. Finally, in the 1920s, American communist leader Jay Lovestone rendered a diagnosis of American society that echoed those of Zumbart and the Vatican. His purpose was to explain, or explain away, his comrades' failure through their agitation and propaganda, to raise the consciousness of the workers of Pittsburgh or Detroit. They made so little progress in America. Well, the reason, argued Lovestone, was that capitalism in the U.S. was so exceptionally productive and stable that it was hard to raise the consciousness of the proletariat. Hence, the revolution would take longer to develop here than in other countries. Joseph Stalin wasn't having it. He anathematized this theory as a form of deviationism. Well, then Wall Street promptly crashed, 
and the American Communist Party officially coined the term at its 1930 Congress in the form of an obituary. Quote, the storm of the economic crisis in the United States blew down the house of cards of American exceptionalism, unquote. In declaring the bulk of the Affordable Care Act constitutional, Chief Justice John Roberts gave the law new life. But Roberts' opinion also opens the law to new challenges. Tim Sandifer, a lawyer and adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute, discussed that question at a Cato Policy Forum in February. Our case focuses on the question of, okay, so it's a tax. Let's say it's a tax. Now what? As you know, in June, what the Supreme Court, well, Chief Justice Roberts, a swing opinion, said that the individual mandate provision in Obamacare isn't really a mandate. What it really is is a tax for not buying health insurance. Now, the distinction between a law that forces you to buy health insurance and a law that only taxes you for not buying health insurance is the kind of distinction that only a lawyer could love. But it is actually rather important in some respects. First of all, Chief Justice Roberts argues that it's not a mandate, it's a tax, meaning you are free to choose not to buy the insurance as long as you pay the tax. And that means it would be unconstitutional if it were actually a compulsory mandate. He goes at length in the opinion explaining the difference between the power to regulate commerce, which allows you to compel the behavior, and the power to tax, which is only the power to force people to pay a certain amount of money to the government. And that suggests, and indeed strongly implies, that it would be unconstitutional if it were in fact a mandate. And Roberts emphasizes, I think, that one of the reasons he makes this ruling is because, in his view at least, the amount of tax is relatively modest. If the tax were so high or were increased to such a rate as to be a practical compulsion, then it would be unconstitutional. So he pitches the case as the reverse of the Drexel Furniture case, also known as the child labor tax case. In that case, the Supreme Court said that what was purporting to be a tax was really a mandate. He says in this case, what purports to be a mandate is really just a tax. Okay, so let's assume it's a tax. Now what? As the court itself acknowledges, assuming is it, that it's a tax, it therefore must comply with the constitutional restrictions on taxation. And that includes the requirements of uniformity or apportionment, and in any case, the origination clause. Now, uniformity and apportionment are not involved in the case I'm litigating, so I addressed that in the article and I won't discuss them here. But origination, the origination clause says that all bills for raising revenue must originate in the House of Representatives, although the Senate can amend such bills as it can with any other bill. We had a lawsuit going forward back when this all started that got put on hold while the Supreme Court was considering the case. And now that the court has issued its decision, we went back to our judge and we got permission to amend our complaint to argue that if this is a tax, it did not originate in the House of Representatives and is therefore unconstitutional. Our client, Matt Sissel, is a medic and a member of the National Guard, an Iraq War veteran, who doesn't believe that he should be forced by the government to buy health insurance. So we challenged the law initially under the Commerce Clause, just like what went up to the Supreme Court, and now we're arguing that it violates the Origination Clause. The Origination Clause was very important to the Founding Fathers. They understood that the power to tax is a very dangerous power. It's the most direct form of sovereignty that is experienced by most individuals in the nation, and therefore it should be kept close to the vest. It should be kept close, as close as possible to the direct representatives who are elected locally every two years, and not with the Senate, which is elected at that time by state legislatures and every six years on a rotating basis. But the Patient and Protection and Affordable Care Act did not originate in the House. It originated in the Senate. What happened was the Senate generated this legislation and took a bill that had been passed in the House, scooped out its entire contents, and replaced it with the bill that the Senate would prefer to see, and then passed that. Now, the original bill had nothing to do with health care or health insurance or anything. It would have provided certain financial incentives for veterans to own, to buy their first homes. And this legislation was emptied of its entire contents and replaced. Now this technique, this shell bill technique, or the gut and amend, we call it in California, 
is used sometimes by state legislatures and by Congress to try and you know, play with the procedural rules. Well, this bill is at this stage of passage, so why don't we just replace it and amend it? But there has never been a case in American history where the Supreme Court has addressed the question of whether Congress can use this trick to get around the clear constitutional command of the origination clause and say, yeah, the Senate can originate legislation and then can just, with this trick of legislative ledger domain, take an existing House bill and replace it with its own legislation. Now, there have been some cases on the question of origination. And the leading one is a case called Flint versus Stone Tracy Company from 1911. And what happened there was there was a House bill that would have, I believe, would have reduced some, one kind of tax. And the Senate considered it and amended it by taking that out and replacing it with a bill that would have increased a different kind of tax. And that went up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court said, OK, this is allowed. But look, there's a limit. The Senate can't get around the entire origination clause by amendment, by one of these clever amendments. The amendment, in order to pass constitutional muster, the amendment must be germane. That was the word, germane. What does that mean, germane? Germane to what? Well, the court says germane to the subject matter of the House bill. Now, in our case, the government has moved to dismiss our lawsuit by saying, oh, it was germane because the first bill had something to do with taxes, and the second bill had something to do with taxes. Well, by that theory, of course, one bill is germane to another bill because they're both written on paper, or they're both written in the English language. What Flint versus Stone Tracy requires is that the bills be germane to the same actual subject matter. Economists have puzzled over economic growth since at least the days of Adam Smith, but there may be a silver lining in a weak economy. It provides an opportunity for economic reforms that enhance freedom. Frank Lindsay discussed the libertarian logic of economic growth at the Cato Institute's 25th Annual Benefactors Summit in February. I have two theses here uh, about the connection between economic growth and freedom. First, the demand for growth pushes societies in the direction of greater economic freedom. Second, the supply of growth pushes societies in the direction of greater personal freedom. So let's start with the first thesis, and let's just give the evidence. Over the past generation, the evidence is in, there has been a clear move towards economic freedom around the world. The stats here come from the Economic Freedom of the World Report, an annual report published by the Fraser Institute, co-published by numerous think tanks around the world, including Cato. They measure various indicators of economic freedom on a one to 10 scale or a zero to 10 scale. They sum them all up, and you come up with a a country overall score. This is for over 100 countries that were measured throughout this period. And you see the overall score has been going up. Why is this going on? Is this happening because some, voila, policymakers discovered Adam Smith and Ludwig von Mises and F.A. Hayek? No, it's not going on that way. It's going on because of the demand for growth. Growth and prosperity are nearly universally popular around the world. And so policymakers, especially in democracies, but basically anywhere, legitimate themselves by delivering the goods. And if they don't, they get in trouble. In democratic polities, if your growth performance lags compared to what it has been in the past, or it lags behind your neighbors, you're going to give the opposition party an opening, and they're going to come in with a plan B. Now, maybe it's going to be a plan B that's even worse than the status quo, but it appears generally now that the whole ideal of central planning and socialism has been intellectually discredited, it appears now that the general move is that faltering economic performance creates conditions for positive policy reform. So the guiding spirit of reform over this past generation around the world has not been principled libertarianism or support for or understanding of free markets. It's been pragmatism. Deng Xiaoping, probably the greatest liberator of the 20th century. If you want to just count the total number of people whose lives he affected and the total increment of freedom that he added to people's lives, Deng's probably number one. And he was a communist. He was a veteran of the Long March. And his rationale for unleashing these changes was pure pragmatism. His saying, it doesn't matter whether a cat is white or black so long as it catches mice. So that spirit of pragmatism, recognizing however unwillingly and unhappily that markets work, and therefore giving 
markets the chance to produce the growth and prosperity uh, that people so ardently desire. That has been the dynamic that is pushing countries two steps forward, one step back, but clearly over time in the correct direction. All right, the second thesis that the supply of growth increases, pushes societies in the direction of greater personal freedom. That is, economic growth makes people want personal freedom more. I wrote a book about this called The Age of Abundance where I look specifically at the story of the United States. And the specifics of the United States are a story unto itself, but it's a generic story that's going on around the world. In telling the story in the United States, I relied on the metaphor of Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs. If you took Psych 101, you probably saw this diagram somewhere. The idea is as a theory of human motivation and that there are, there's a hierarchy of psychic needs. At the very bottom is survival and security. If you're hungry, if you're being chased by a predator, you've got nothing else on your mind except survival and security. But if you're back home in your cave, you've eaten a you've got a full belly, the saber-toothed tiger has been dodged for the day, you don't stop worrying. You start worrying about new things. You start worrying about, do I have friends? What's my standing in the community? Am I loved? Do I fit in? Belonging needs, Maslow calls them. But if you've got all that going for you, so you're happy in your community and you're also assured of survival and security, again, you don't stop worrying. You start worrying about new things, things that Maslow called self-actualization needs, fulfilling your potential, being all you can be, following your bliss, and uh, those are inexhaustible needs. So I use this, Maslow was talking about individual psychology, but I think it applies to nations and cultures as well, and the story I told in Age of Abundance was that starting with the post-war boom in the United States, we had something new under the sun, the first society in human history where the vast majority of people could take their basic material needs for granted. The baby boom generation, really the first generation in history raised to take their basic material needs for granted. Poverty, the norm for human existence, for almost all of human existence, now an exceptional problem to be solved. And when that happened, America got off the base of Maslow's pyramid and moved from concerns, American culture, moved from a predominant focus on survival and security and moved towards thinking about self-realization. And this cultural reorientation away from a scarcity-based ethos of self-restraint to an abundance-based ethos of self-realization goes hand-in-hand -hand with a real anti-authoritarian mentality. Basically, once people are starting to focus really on the pursuit of happiness and on self-realization, they get really impatient with anything that's standing in their way, whether it be the state or traditional cultural norms and beliefs. This is happening all over the world, not just in the United States. The chief social scientist who is tracking these cultural changes is a political scientist named Ronald Engelhart, and he runs this World Values Survey that's been going since the 1970s, keeps adding countries. He uses different terminology. He talks about materialist versus post-materialist ethics or survival ethics versus self-expression ethics. But the basic idea is one of a shift away toward more and more focus on quality of life, personal fulfillment, meaning of life, self-realization, and generally along with that, uh, move towards greater tolerance, cosmopolitanism, less racism, less sexism. If you're in a non-democratic country, more interest in sharing in political rights. And so here, the diagram is taking people who polled with strongly materialist or traditional values versus post-materialist and the difference between them. And you see that between 1970 and 2000 in all the rich countries, huge spikes in this post-materialist kind of ethos. Here, we're looking at whole blocks of different countries around the world, not just rich countries, and we see the same thing. The one exception here, this is over the course of the 1980s and 90s, but in the Eastern ex-communist countries, you actually see a fall during the 1990s. Not a big surprise. Their societies were in complete collapse around them. When that is happening, it's natural for cultures to retrench and be focused more on survival and security. But everywhere else over this time period, you see this move towards a more individualistic, more anti-authoritarian kind of culture. Our immigration system is broken, that much is clear, but how we go about fixing it will have long-term economic implications. 
Clint Bolick is a litigator at the Goldwater Institute and co-author of the new book, Immigration Wars. He spoke about immigration reform at the Cato Institute's 25th Annual Benefactors Summit in February. As those of you who are familiar with my work back at the Institute for Justice or now at the Goldwater Institute know, one of the major issues that I've worked on over the years is the issue of economic liberty, challenging barriers to entrepreneurship. And I have a very interesting case right now involving something that probably uh, some of the people in the room know about, and that is fish pedicures. This is where you stick your feet into a tank and fish nibble on you and remove the dead skin, and I am told that it is a very pleasurable experience. In fact, when Cato is next back here for a benefactor summit and we've gotten the regulations taken care of, you can all have a fish pedicure. In any event, we represent a Vietnamese lady who moved here thinking that she was escaping communist tyranny and finding freedom, only to find that, in fact, she was coming back to communist tyranny. Uh, she owns a nail salon. She set up a fish pedicure business. It was wildly popular and successful. And of course, the Board of Cosmetology said, this is an illegal form of pedicure because the fish cannot be sanitized, and they proceeded to shut her down. Well, we filed a lawsuit against this, and we were looking for an expert to testify as a witness in our lawsuit, and we found that there were no experts on fish pedicures and the health risks of fish pedicures in the country. And just as we were about to file our motion for summary judgment, it turned out that the United Kingdom Health Protection Authority came out with a study saying that fish pedicures are entirely safe and that they should not be banned as they are in Arizona and many other places. So we contacted the head of the Health Protection Agency and we said, would you be our expert? You are the only expert in the entire world. We need you to come to Arizona. And he said, yes. So we had a two-day trial, and uh, he agreed to come out to testify on one of those days, and that's when we encountered the immigration system. Because he was going to be working one day in the United States, we had to get a visa for him. Now this visa application had 24 pages of instructions. The application form was 35 pages, in addition to that, we had to submit 97 pages of additional documentation. It took 42 days to process this application. And it only took 42 days because in addition to the $325 application fee, we also had to spend $1,225 to expedite the application. It came in just in the nick of time and this was all to bring someone in to work for one day. When you think about that and magnify that for people trying to bring in skilled workers into this country, it is breathtaking. It is absolutely breathtaking. Well, the people in this room, if they know one thing, know that when there is a government-imposed obstacle, the market will find a way around it. And one of the ideas that has surfaced recently is the idea of what's called Blue Seed. And Blue Seed was the brainchild of two young entrepreneurs, one of them an immigrant from Sarajevo, the other the son of Cuban immigrants. And the idea is that if we can't bring enough foreign workers into the United States, we will bring the United States to the foreign workers. So they are raising capital from the likes of Peter Thiel of PayPal to buy an ocean liner, which they are going to anchor just outside the territorial limits of the United States. And they are going to ferry Silicon Valley investors out to this ship, and living on the ship are going to be hundreds of people who are unable to get immigration visas but are very skilled engineers and so forth. Now just think about this. This is a perfect metaphor for how screwed up our immigration policy is. It used to be that the likes of William F. Buckley Jr. would sail outside the territorial limits of the United States to smoke pot. 
Now you can smoke pot legally all over the United States, but you have to sail outside the territorial limits of the United States to conduct business. This is not a good development. And what it says to me is that we need to completely overhaul our immigration policy. We need to get rid of that horrible chart and literally start from scratch. Our, thank you. Our immigration law is over 60 years old now, and it has been patched over so many times, it has become horribly incoherent and complex. Now, the debate over immigration policy has been going on in our country for 225 years, and it has not changed at all. If you look at Benjamin Franklin's arguments against German immigration back in the late 1700s, they could be the exact same arguments that are used to argue against immigration today. But there are two conditions that exist in the United States today that have never existed in our country before that make reforming immigration policy more compelling than at any time before in our history. The first is that our population is no longer growing. In fact, as of two years ago, our birth rate has fallen significantly below the rate that is necessary to replenish our population. Now, in one sense, this is a competitive advantage for the United States because that situation is much worse in Europe and it is far worse in Asia, where population is shrinking pretty dramatically. But we are facing now a demographic cliff, and this is something that the Cato Institute has been warning about for many years. Milton Friedman used to say that open immigration could not be possible in a welfare state. And I think Alex was absolutely right to say that we need to build a, a wall around the welfare state. But interestingly, the converse has become true. We cannot sustain our welfare state without immigrants because we have too few young workers supporting an increasing population of people drawing welfare benefits. The Social Security Administration recently advanced the projections uh, saying that Social Security Disability Fund will run out of money by 2016, Medicare by 2014, and Social Security by 2033. At the same time, of course, GDP growth has become incredibly anemic. We need productive young people, productive young workers, and because we are no longer growing our own in sufficient numbers, there is only one place to get them, and that is from abroad. The second condition is that for the first time in its history, the United States is being forced to compete for immigrants in a very significant way. We have this hubris that because we are the United States, the best and the brightest will come here pretty much no matter what we do. It's sort of the mentality that, uh, that California has had for many years, which is people are gonna come there no matter what. Well, we are finding with our immigration laws that fewer and fewer of the best and brightest are coming to the United States because we act through our immigration policy as if we don't want them. Listen to this interesting statistic. Canada has one-tenth of the population of the United States. It now issues more high-skilled visas than the United States does every year. They are bringing in more of the best and brightest workers than the United States is, not per capita, in absolute numbers. This situation, if we don't correct it, is a true crisis because, as everyone in this room well knows, our K-12 educational system is an absolute disaster. And as a result, our colleges and universities are turning out one-third as many STEM graduates as there are jobs for STEM graduates. So we have two choices and two choices only. We either bring in immigrants to fill those jobs 
or we lose those jobs to foreign countries. And because we are not doing enough of the first, we are, in fact, suffering the, the, the remainder. Now, Republicans in Congress are increasingly receptive to immigration reform, and you will hear from one of them tonight, my good friend Jeff Flake, who uh, is the former president of the Goldwater Institute and a leading immigration reform proponent. But even Jeff is among the Republicans who are fighting the wrong war. They are fighting yesterday's war, and that was the war against illegal immigration. We won that war. As Alex mentioned, net migration from Mexico right now is zero. Barack Obama will tell you that he won that war by increasing border security and by deporting lots, lots of people. And in fact, Obama has deported more illegal immigrants than any other president, and I think it's his union buddies who are behind that. Now, my dear friend, Sheriff Joe Arpaio, that was a, a sarcastic comment. And by the way, just a quick aside on Sheriff Joe. If you happen to be pulled over by Sheriff Joe while you were visiting here in Arizona, please do not tell him that you know me. Because if you do, you will end up in pink underwear wearing, uh, eating bologna sandwiches. And I want you to get the Four Seasons cuisine instead. But Sheriff Joe will tell you that the reason we have less illegal immigration is because of SB 1070 and because of all of the people that he has pulled over for broken taillights. But the real reason is exactly what Alex told you a few moments ago. And this has been true throughout history. If our economy stinks, People are not going to come here. And we are in danger in the not too distant future, especially with Mexico's economy improving, of having a situation where we have too few Mexican Americans or Mexican immigrants rather than too many in terms of filling the jobs. So what war should we be fighting? We need to transform our immigration policy into a market-based immigration system. One statistic says it all. In 1970, 70% of our immigrants came in for work or because of their talent. Today, in 2013, and it's interesting that the numbers line up this way, 13% of immigrants come in based on work or talent. 87% come in for other reasons. Two-thirds of them come in because of family preferences. Now, we worship the family in this country as well we should, but what happened was that starting in the 1960s, the definition of family was broadened to include not just spouses and minor children, but parents and siblings. And then when they came in, they were entitled to family preferences as well. And guess what? Mexican-Americans and Asians have big families. And this is why we have such an incredible backlog of people wanting to come into our country. There are so few slots for workers, and there are huge backlogs of family uh, members wanting to come in and family members do not necessarily contribute to the economy. They may be in school, and they may be elderly, they may not be productive workers. That is totally screwed up, and the countries that are cleaning our clocks on immigration right now, like Canada, New Zealand, Chile, and increasingly even China, are making their immigration system more market-based, focused on work, rather than family preferences. Now, um, what I think we need to do, and my book with Jeb will go into far greater detail on this, and I'm happy to say that our debut of this book in Washington, D.C. will be at the Cato Institute, and that will be on March 6th at noon, and I understand that, uh, that it's gonna be live streamed so that even folks who can't make it in person uh, can see it online. Um, but in, in a nutshell, what we advocate is to narrow the definition of family preferences to the, uh, to the nuclear family, 
to dramatically expand work-based immigration, even to the point for high-skilled workers and for entrepreneurs who bring capital with them to unlimited numbers. We don't, we don't think there ought to be any cap on those types of people coming into the United States, but also it is essential to have uh, low-skill um, work opportunities as well. And then to restore a means by which people who simply want to come to the United States can come. As Alex mentioned, and just putting it a different way, people who oppose immigration often say, these illegal immigrants ought to get into the back of the line. There is no line. The only way that people who want to come to the United States can do so, if they, can't, if they aren't eligible for a family uh, preference, and if they aren't able to squeeze into one of the few numbers of work-based visas, they have to go into what's called a diversity lottery. And there are 250 applicants for every position in that diversity lottery. The best way to make sure we never have illegal immigration again is to have a working legal immigration system. And we have not had that for a very long time. I want to finish by saying this. For 225 years, America has agonized about its immigration problem. Our immigration problem, in my view, is not something to agonize about. It is something to celebrate. The notion that millions of people want to come here to work, to raise families, to pursue the American dream, to embrace American ideals, all of that is a wonderful thing. It is what creates and sustains American exceptionalism. Immigration not only fuels our economy, it replenishes the American spirit. In fact, we should tremble at the prospect that one day we will cease to have an immigration problem because that means that people no longer want to come here. If that happens, Lady Liberty will transform from a welcoming beacon to an historical relic. To prevent that tragic day from arriving, we need to fix our immigration policy, and we need to fix it today. Since the Mexican government initiated a military offensive against the country's powerful drug cartels in December of 2006, in support of the U.S. drug prohibition policy, tens of thousands of people have died, and the drugs continue to flow. In his book, The Fire Next Door, Ted Galen Carpenter details the ongoing horror in Mexico and argues that the only effective strategy is for the U.S. to abandon its failed drug war, eliminate the lucrative black market premium on drugs, and cut off the financial resources of drug cartels. You can order your copy of The Fire Next Door at Cato.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.